Hey, welcome back to Unshakable. Welcome to my home office. I'm glad to welcome you in today. This is our third episode on the subject of this movement that we call Christian nationalism, which is becoming very popular. And as a precursor to that discussion, we're talking about its eschatological framework, which is post-millennialism. Today is a biblical critique of post-millennialism. If you need to know what that means, go watch last week's episode. But before I critique it, let me, sh- let me start by hopefully being charitable and sharing what I appreciate about post-millennialists. Now, here's the thing. Um, the doctrine of the end times is difficult. We all know that. Eschatology is very, very hard. And uh, sincere brothers and sisters in Christ come to different convictions about interpreting all the texts, both Old and New Testament, about what the end days will look like. I think we need to appreciate each other because it's hard. And so let me start by saying there's a couple things about post-millennialists that I really, really appreciate. Number one, they're very bold in what they believe. They're willing to jump into the fight and to get their ideas out there into the marketplace of ideas. I appreciate that. And we'll talk more about that in the coming weeks. Number two, they have a really big vision for the power of the gospel. They believe the gospel is powerful to transform uh, the human heart, but also secular societies to really make a difference in the world. So I really appreciate that. Now, having said that, I see some real biblical problems, and that's what today's episode is about. Let me also make this really important statement about how we interpret Scripture. Whether you're premillennial, amillennial, postmillennial, we all have to resist the temptation to come to a conviction on the end times based on what we see happening in the world. Both sides, premillennials right now, we have attempt, we're tempted to say, well, look how awful the world is right now, and therefore post-mill cannot be correct. That's actually not a legitimate hermeneutic for interpreting scripture. Uh, at the same time, post-mills have to be really careful, and this has happened throughout church history. There were times uh, in, in, in the development of the church where post-millennialism was very popular. Why? Because the trajectory of of the gospel spreading across the world was on the upswing. Back in the days of Augustine, for example, when Christianity seemed to be spreading all over the world, people said, well, see, post-millennialism must be correct. It also grew after the Reformation, when things got more optimistic about a return to the Word of God as the center point of of church life. And so post-mill grew. In fact, the Puritans used a post-mill view of society as sort of the fuel for their missions. Um, but then, interestingly, after the 20th century, after World War I and World War II, postmillennialism took a dive. Why? Because the world began to look much more bleak, that there was more sin on the earth, right? And now it's making a comeback today. All that to say, you shouldn't, be post, you shouldn't reject postmill just because things look terrible, but you also shouldn't be postmill just when you see Christianity on the upswing. We need to be careful that we don't interpret the Bible based on what we see with our physical eyes, because let's be honest, we see very little. We see a very narrow scope. So we're not going to fall into that as we critique post-millennialism today. Okay, so let's dive into our biblical critique of post-millennialism. And just so you know, this is going to take a couple episodes because there's so much material I want to cover. So many distinctions that I think need to be made between pre- and post-millennial ideas. 
And I want to start today by talking about one of the biggest issues, and, and this really is my biggest problem with the post-millennial view. And I'm going to read it so that uh, I make sure that I, I, I say it clearly and you understand what I'm saying clearly and what I'm not saying. The biggest problem I see is an emphasis on nations, an emphasis on nations and the outward Christianization of those nations, rather than on individuals and on inward regeneration of the heart of those individuals. See, biblically, we shouldn't just be interested in seeing people submit to God's law in an outward way. The, that, that is moralism, right? Now, it's not a bad thing. In fact, it's a good thing. It would be a very good thing if, if all people came under the moral law, but that's not the mission of the church. What we want to see is people be changed from within, that they would bow their hearts to Christ and give their lives to Him as Lord, being born again as an act of the Spirit. That's what we want to see. And this goes back to the Great Commission, which I, I know we touched on last week. What does it actually say? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. It doesn't say disciple all nations. Again, make disciples of all nations, meaning from within the population of those nations, make disciples, see them get saved, and make disciples. So the mission of the church is not to make nations Christian. That would be a nice byproduct of the mission, but it's not the mission. The mission, actually, and this is really, really key, is to make one new nation out of all of the nations of the earth. And that is what? That is the body of Christ. That is the nation. This is where 1 Peter 2 becomes so important. As we talk about how Christ is building His church, building His one body, the universal body of Christ. What does it say in 1 Peter 2? Let's look at it. It says, first of all, you as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. Okay, We are each living stones being built into a temple. To do what? To offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, who is our high priest, right? And then it goes on. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Get this now. A holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. So, the church is one royal assembly created by the Spirit of God and gathered out of the nations from every race, tribe, and tongue, gathered into a one new holy nation, the body of Christ. That is our view. So we're to go out and we're to preach the gospel. We're to proclaim, as Peter says, the excellencies of God through Jesus Christ. We're to call the elect out of the nations and into this royal kingdom, this holy nation. And building his church through regeneration of the heart, not Christianization. That is, that is not the goal, right? So we want actual heart change. We want to see people transformed, born again. And bit by bit, the spiritual house of God is being built as every living stone is being quarried out of the, the rubble of fallen humanity. God is building his church. And by the way, Peter could not be more clear about our status on the earth and these nations we live in than what he writes next. He says this, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Did you catch that? We are aliens and strangers right now, 
down here on the earth. Back in chapter 1, Peter talked about this time that we live in these nations on the earth as our time of exile, or he says, our time of stay on the earth. That's what we are. We are we're foreigners. We don't really fit into this world. There, there's no prediction here. There's no hint of a prediction that we as Christians are going to somehow become the majority of the population, that we are going to dominate the nations of the world, imposing the law of God upon all the people groups. No, quite the opposite. He says, while we're here on the earth, this is a time of exile, that we are aliens and strangers. Further, he talks about setting our minds not on things that are earthly, but on things that are above. Why? Because that's our true home, right? Focusing on the idea that our citizenship, well, yeah, we're temporarily Americans. Our true citizenship is in heaven. And we really function right now as a colony of, of, a, of a holy nation within a larger secular nation right now while we're on the earth. We live in a temporary host country right now, and we're a colony of believers within that host nation. The descriptions that Peter and the other apostles use to describe this, this idea of our true home, our true citizenship, they are designed now, this is important, to loosen our allegiance to our country, to loosen our allegiance to any host nation or to the world itself, and to tighten our allegiance to our truest home, our truest family, which is Christ's people, the church. And this is important. Listen. Earthly nations come and go. There's no guarantee that America is going to last. And we know at some point it's, it's obviously going to go away. So they come and go. But the holy nation that Christ has brought us into, right, that does not go away. That is eternal. It's unshakable. Here's the thing. If postmillennialism were correct, I would want to see that mission of Christianizing the nations, that that would show up in the instructions that Jesus gave to his disciples when he sent them out. Or at the very least, I'd like to see that mission being carried out, say in the book of Acts, which is the story of the unfolding church, or to see those instructions reflected in the later epistles to the church that are being written by the apostles. But we really don't see that. Nowhere can I find instructions that Jesus said to his guys, go out and establish God's law in the pagan lands that I'm sending you into. We don't see that. He doesn't gather his guys and say, look, let's go out and overcome the pagan ways of all these nations, right? Or go out and see if you can change laws or transform civil government in order to submit to my lordship. You just don't see that. You don't see it in Paul. You don't see it in Peter or John. They're not trying to change laws. They're not trying to advocate that nations, nations as a whole submit to Christianity in an outward sense. That's just not reflected in the New Testament record. Look at the way disciples are made in the book of Acts, right? Individuals hear the gospel and they are saved. It is not a record in the book of Acts of city-states coming to submit to Christianity. If postmillennialism were correct, somewhere you would think in the New Testament, you'd see at least a hint of countries, nations, governments bowing their knee to the Lordship of Christ and then going out to baptize they're citizens, but that's not found anywhere. The fact is, in this present age that we live in, Jesus' kingdom is not earthly. It's not designed to be earthly. And he said this himself, didn't he? Back in John chapter 18, we know the scene. Pontius Pilate is interrogating the Lord after his arrest. And Pilate point blank asks him, are you the king of the Jews? 
And Jesus answers in part, my kingdom is not of this world. Now, what did he mean by that? Well, first of all, he was saying, yes, I am a king, but my kingdom is not like anything you can understand, Pilate. My kingdom does not come from the earth, right? Its nature is not the same as the kingdoms of the earth. It's not formed, it's not maintained by the ways that you, Pilate, understand as a Roman, a nation or a kingdom is established, not by weapons and not by raw power. And we see that in what Jesus says next to Pilate. Let's look at it. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Now, we know at some point in the future, Jesus' kingdom will come in all of its power, very much raw power, and he will wipe out his enemies. But in this age, Jesus' kingdom is not like the kingdoms of the earth. In this era, Jesus is using aliens and strangers like you and I, right, within the nations of the world to spread and to conquer how? By the gospel, not by the sword, not by transforming civil government or changing laws to make it more Christian. And by the way, friends, we really shouldn't be pining away for an outward Christianization of the nations of the world. We really shouldn't. And here's why I say that. Imagine the scenario that we as believers, we go out to the nations of the world and we preach the gospel, but we also bring with us this demand that all societies and all cultures and all people submit to God's law in an outward sense, that they, they follow this code of conduct or this set of moral rules. Would we not be mudding the waters? Would we not be watering down the truth of God's gospel of grace? What would that produce? Think about this for a second. We tell people, this is the gospel, but it comes with this moral law. People are going to submit to it because they have to. And what that produces is a, a cultural form of Christianity with the label on it, but it has no real power because it's not genuine. At worst, what it comes, what it comes down to is it becomes a tyranny. It becomes an absolutely corrupted or apostate form of the Christian faith. And listen, we have historical examples that we can look back to to see how this works out. Think about the early church for a second. When did the early church begin to lose its purity? When did it begin to drift? It's when government got involved in our faith, right? When the Roman Empire made Christianity the approved religion of the empire, things changed. Bigger example, take the medieval church. Roman Catholic Church, right, dominates every aspect of society, sets codes of conduct, right, dominates culture, even dominates government. You have the Pope dominating kings of the earth, right? Did that produce a purer church? Absolutely not. Did that result in more or less corruption? Definitely more. Did it bring about moral nations? We really don't see that. So what we want to promote in this era today is a counter-cultural form of Christianity. That's what keeps it pure. We don't want a Christian faith that is integrated with civil government. We want a church that thrives as a colony of aliens and strangers, a holy nation within the nations of the earth. And let's be honest, what is it that makes the church pure? It's hardship right? It's persecution. That's when the real test of faith happens. That's when real faith comes out. So we're okay with that. We're okay with not having the approval of men. We're okay with not dominating civil government 
because we are the body of Christ and we're a colony, a holy nation within the nations of the earth. That is when the church is at its best. That's one of my big, big critiques of post-millennialism. Okay, so that's enough for today. That's a lot to think about. We'll pick this up next week. Until then, friends, remain unshakable. Keep loving each other well.